0: The scripture this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, God's marvelous plan for the Gentiles. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Before I pray, I want to take a moment and let you know about something that I think you probably already saw, but it's been my desire... One of my desires uh, to encourage the arts at Stonebridge, and whether that be painting, photography, music, poetry, dance, or any of the many other expressions that art takes, uh, it's been my hope that Stonebridge would embrace the arts and live those out in different ways. And I remember sharing this with one of our artists who is a member here at Stonebridge, Lee Williams, a number of years ago, and we've kind of had ongoing dialogue about this in different ways. And uh, as you walked in through the foyer today, uh, you may have noticed that Lee has just completed this magnificent piece of art that she's allowing to be here and remain reside here in Stonebridge's foyer. And uh, in your bulletin, you will see a description of that piece of art, uh, which declares God's majesty, you know, the coming of His kingdom to earth, and what's so beautiful is she's And she's captured in this piece how we live out our part in that through the stones of Stonebridge and other ways. And, you know, art's just one of those things because our God is an artist. All you have to do is look around at his creation and you see how artistic our Lord is. And art in all of its forms has a way of uh, displaying forth his glory and communicating things that, you know, the spoken word just can't. And so I'm thrilled and so thankful for Lee, and I promised her I wouldn't embarrass her by making her stand up or anything, but uh, she worked hard at this, and uh, if you see Lee, uh, thank her for her work in this, and also, I mean, I, I just think that as you read that description, I encourage you, take some time even after the service today to read that description and, and just ponder what that art is representing, and uh, I think... Uh, The Lord can use that in in a number of ways, but Lee, thank you very much. As we pray now, we're going to take a moment and uh, not only pray for the Lord to open His Word to us, but I'd like to invite you to pray also with me for uh, those in Louisiana who've suffered so greatly this week. Uh, Our deacons already have talked about a possibility of doing something and how we can be involved in the relief effort there. Uh, We'll tell you more about that as able, but uh, let's pray for uh, those in Louisiana, even this morning, who are taking shelter in many of the churches around there. Uh, Let's pray. Father God, thank You. Thank You that You are here with us right now, and Lord, I pray that uh, Your presence, Your very evident presence, would be manifest to those in Louisiana, Lord, Um, believer and unbeliever, who are gathered together in churches and in little communities. Who've literally lost everything. Father, I pray that uh, you would use your believers there who have lost everything to show forth the hope that they have in you, that you could use this disaster for your glory. Lord, we pray for the relief work and we pray for those who have lost everything, that you would provide the resources to help them. Uh, Lord, that it would not take a long amount of time. And uh, Father, that You would encourage people from all over this nation and maybe even around the world to uh, help those in need. So, we commit them to You. Uh, We ask now, Lord Jesus, that You would open Your Word to us and glorify Your name this morning in our midst. And we pray all this in Your holy name. Amen. We are continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians that we're calling An Identity Crafted by Grace. And today's passage in Ephesians 3 is honestly just a bit odd. It's, and, and the reason it's odd is it's an interruption. And you see, just as Paul is about to pray for the church in Ephesus, he goes into this completely other direction. It's, it's kind of like he shifts gears and goes in a different way. And so what you have is this completely separate train of thought in verses 2 through 13. And, and even the commentators, they say it's odd. And what you find here is if you read this for the first time this morning, you probably had a hard time following Paul's main train of thought through it. There's a reason for that. He's rambling a lot. Even the apostle can ramble, and so which is an encouragement to pastors and preachers everywhere. But um, what we're going to do this morning is look at what I think Paul does to frame this thing, but but you know commentators will say usually what people do because what we had last week was this beautiful passage about the community of Christ, and next week, what you have is this beautiful passage about christ 's amazing love for us it 's length and width and height and depth and and why wouldn't you skip to that because honestly, this one 's hard, and so the commentators say, sometimes people just actually skip this as they go through it, but we don't do that. And so now, you'll notice that there's an interruption, and all the translations do this, because right at the end of verse 1, you'll see a dash, because he's just getting into his prayer and then stops, shifts, and changes direction completely. And it's a lot like if you've ever seen the movie Up, there's a wonderful little character in it called Doug the dog, and this is kind of what Paul does. My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk, Squirrel. My master is good. at You see what what we have in these twelve verses is Paul's squirrel moment, and and, and so he looks to the side and he runs down this train of thought and starts talking about it. Then he comes back to you know, Doug the dog is talking about his wonderful master, Squirrel. That's kind of what Paul does. And so if we were teaching this in a focus class, what we would do is go down, because Paul does ramble in this, and he goes down all these different side roads. And we could tease and trace those out in a lot of different ways, but what I want to do this morning is hopefully give you an overarching way of thinking about this, so that then you, having that, can tease out some of those trails on your own as you sit and spend time in God's Word this week. And the gift that Paul gives us in this passage, is he really does frame it with verse 1 and verse 13, because what happens in verse 1, he says a word or writes a word that really causes this, you know, diversion. And so, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. He's about to pray, and you'll see in verse 14, he picks right up, for this reason, with his prayer, But he thinks about the fact that i'm a prisoner and here's this young church who knows i'm a prisoner and then he ends this whole section with verse 13 saying so i ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory and so what you see is paul he mentions the fact that he's a prisoner And that makes him think about how the church at Ephesus is wrestling with this concept. And so he ends this diversion by saying, don't be discouraged. Yes, I'm a prisoner. Don't be discouraged at my sufferings. And so this concept of suffering is what ties this whole thing together in different ways. And it's the very reason that Paul went into this diversion. And so what we see is that the Bible regularly mentions the reality of suffering, and that's where we're going to begin. The Bible, thankfully, it doesn't minimize it. It doesn't say that, oh, just ignore it, it's an anomaly. The Bible hits the concept and the reality of suffering head-on in many different places. And you realize that every life on this planet will experience suffering, Good and bad, young and old, everyone experiences suffering in different ways. And thankfully, the Bible addresses that. You know, being a Christian doesn't remove you from suffering at all. In Louisiana, it wasn't just the non-Christians who lost their homes and suffered at this with this natural disaster; many Christians did too. So, don't think that by being a Christian that somehow it removes you. From the effects of suffering in life. Suffering comes to everyone, and sometimes those who've never experienced it probably just haven't lived quite long enough yet because it does come to everyone. In 1987, I was a freshman at Georgia Tech and I went to this uh, conference called Urbana, and the keynote speaker was this Christian from Sri Lanka, a wonderful man. Uh, pastor, and he, he works with the urban poor in Sri Lanka named Ajith Fernando. He wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called The Call to Joy and Pain because he wrestles a lot with Christians and suffering. And this is, this is what he writes, and I think he says it so well. He says, the church, it'll come back, the church in each culture has its own special challenges theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering, the good life comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. And if they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. Very biblical. And I believe a is 100% correct. He's spot on. You see, Paul, remember, as he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, he is in prison suffering because of the very fact that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this entire diversion because he also knows that when we contemplate suffering and when we experience suffering, it's natural for suffering to create doubt in our lives. You, you know this as you read your Bible. Uh, you can look at the Old Testament. and Remember Job, this great man of God who endured suffering, and it caused great doubt. You can think about John the Baptist. Remember the firebrand who, uh, almost fearless in different ways, and yet he's in prison, and he's suffering, and he seems to know that his doom is impending, he has a moment of great doubt, which I think is a gift, the Bible sharing this with us. Even this great man of faith, John the Baptist, sent people to Jesus saying, are you you really the one who was promised to come? And if so, what am I still doing in prison if you're the Messiah? Even John the Baptist can doubt because suffering can create doubt in God's people, and Paul Knows this as they think about him being a prisoner, as they possibly contemplate their own future sufferings. So what Paul is seeking to do in this diversion is basically he's being a pastor. He's seeking to shepherd this young flock and to encourage them as they think about his own sufferings and possibly contemplate theirs. And so what Paul does in framing this with suffering, there's two big thoughts he has that are are a way to think about this passage as it relates to suffering, and they are, and we'll cover both of these. First, as it relates to suffering, I don't know what's going on here, Uh, the mystery of grace and the wisdom of the church. So these are the two big ways that Paul frames his articulation of suffering in this passage. So let's first look at the mystery of grace You'll find this in verses 2 through 9. So if you're wanting to follow it, verse 1, he starts off diversion. Now, verses 2 through 9, he talks about the mystery of grace. Let me read the first six verses to you again. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then... occurs three times in these first six verses there. It also occurs a fourth time in verse 9. Now, as we think about this word mystery, the tragic thing is the way the Bible uses mystery is just the opposite of the way we use it. You know, when you and I think about the word mystery, we usually go to Agatha Christie you know, thinking about mysteries that we see in movies or in plays or books that we read. And basically, the way we talk about mystery is there's something out there that's hidden that we don't know, and through our effort, through our work, through our reasoning, we unearth it. We, we sleuth it out. We figure out the mystery. You know, we take something that's hidden, and by our effort, we reveal it. That's not what mystery means in the Bible. In fact, Paul has said it several times here. The mystery made known to me by revelation, which has not been made known to people in other generations, has, has now been revealed. You see, when the Bible uses the word mystery, what it refers to is something that is hidden that we can never figure out. Not by all of our best work, not by all of our reasoning can we ever unearth it. And so, biblically, when it uses the word mystery, it's something that we could not come to or figure out on our own, something that was hidden and is now revealed by God. You see, that's why sometimes a mystery in Scripture is referred to as an open secret. God has taken something that was hidden, revealed it, now it's this open secret to his people. Now, what is the mystery? Paul defines it in verse 6 by saying this is that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And what John Stott does is he's thinking about this passage, and several commentators agree with him, is that because all of this is like, okay, hasn't Paul already said it? Yes, he has. He's already shared all of this before, so why is he repeating it? Because he's trying to coach them in suffering. And what he does, John Stott says and several other commentators, is that Paul equates the mystery of grace with the gospel itself. Now, you may be saying, well, how is the gospel a mystery? We know that. Well, we didn't come to that through our own reasoning. And and here's what I mean. You can think about it this way. The gospel is the great mystery that has now been opened by God and revealed to us. Now, this is something that's completely counterintuitive to mankind. Because think with me for a moment. How do most people think about getting right with God? And what I mean by that, even the atheist who rejects any idea of God, they know there's something not right in life. And so people are looking for an identity, They're looking for a meaning in life. They're looking for something that gives them purpose. Everyone at the core of their being knows there's something fundamentally not right. They just don't realize it's separation from God Himself. And so what they try to do is figure out ways to make right what seems wrong. And the way that most people do this, actually the way that all people do it, is by doing good things. You do good works. You do good acts for others. You do good things following certain rules, assuming that if I do these things, that now God will accept me. If I'm a good enough person, now God will receive me, and maybe if I'm really good, God will bless me. That's the way all mankind lives. It's the way actually every other religion outside of Christianity teaches you if you want to get right in this life You need to do certain things, and the consequence is you do the right things, you get the right result. The gospel is completely contrary to that. That's why it's a mystery, because the gospel in no sense is about your doing or my doing. The gospel is it's all been done in Jesus Christ. Let me tease this out. You see, the gospel itself and how God redeemed us is part of the mystery because the gospel teaches us Jesus came to this earth, and he lived a righteous life in our place, and he also died a sinner's death on the cross in our place, so that when he died, all of our sin was taken upon him, and he paid the penalty for it completely he did that so that we could be made right with the Father. Okay, so what did we do? Nothing. Nothing. The gospel is never due. The gospel is it's all done in Jesus Christ, and you simply have to receive that gift. You see, how he did it, I said it's part of the mystery. Think about this. How did Jesus triumph? He triumphed through weakness and suffering. No one triumphs that way. Jesus triumphed through weakness and suffering. You could say it this way, Jesus won by losing. You don't win by losing, but the gospel says Jesus did. Jesus gained everything by giving everything away for your sake. Jesus laid down His life only to take it up again. He overcame our sin by taking it on Himself, and what that means is, you see how counterintuitive this is. It's not how good we are; it's how good He was and is. It's not do; it's done. The gospel—that's why the gospel is such a mystery to mankind. We never would have figured this out. It's also why we are all saved by sheer grace. Everyone here at Stonebridge that's saved by grace, everyone that's saved in Jesus Christ around the world, you know what that means? There's a level playing field. No one in here is any better than anyone else. Our sins just take different forms. You see, if there was some way in which, even, even the smallest way, Say there was just some very small way that you can have this extra blessing if you follow these rules. Or you can have this little extra thing in life if you're really good. You know what that would do? Is It would create a class structure within the church. There would be the good people, the not so good people, and then the Daves. You know, and so, you know, it's just, sorry. The gospel removes that. Everyone in Christ's new community is completely saved by grace, which means we're all humble. None of us deserve it. But it was done for us. That's the mystery of the Gospel. See, what happens if you understand this and you let it get into your life it changes you, and it changes how you relate to the Lord. That's why Paul, in verse 12, writes this, "...in Him, in Jesus, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Because what the gospel does is set you free from all your striving, all your trying to prove yourself, all your own attempts to make it right." it sets you free from all of that. I love how Matt Chandler summarizes it. He writes, the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. You are most offensive to God when you come to Him with all of your efforts, when you're still trying to earn what's freely been given. He is completely right. We are most offensive to God when we say, look, God, look at how good I've been. Now you'll accept me, right? no, we're most offensive because now we've made it about ourselves. And the gospel isn't about our doing. It's about what Christ has done. Now, you may be saying, how does this apply to suffering? Very simply, what Paul is writing, and the reason he's rehashing a lot of what he's already, been, what he's already written, is that the mystery of grace can actually see you through suffering. Paul is reminding them of the gospel because he's saying, Remember, what I shared with you before and what I'm writing to you again in this letter now is the most important thing in life. In the gospel, you have the greatest treasure that can never be taken away from you. If you look at verse 1 again, if you have your Bible open, notice Paul doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome, he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Nero or of Governor Felix. Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? Because Paul knows, and he's reminding them, nothing can touch me unless it first passes through a nail-scarred hand. I am no one's prisoner, but Jesus' prisoner. What he's saying is that Because of the amazing grace of Jesus, because of all that we have in Him and the future glory He's promised us, the worst that the world can do to you is nothing in comparison to what is promised to you. Because what's the worst the world can do? Abuse you, torture you, and eventually kill you. And Paul's saying that's nothing compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. Do your worst world, Because as Christ took up his life, he will take up my life too. In this sense, you're bulletproof. And Paul's reminding them, nothing can touch me. I'm no one's prisoner, but Jesus Christ. You can have hope despite all circumstances. Don't shed a tear for me, Paul tells them. I am suffering because of the gospel. And the gospel is what will see me through no matter what. I encourage you, read maybe the uh, Church in the World insert in your bulletin, not now, (laughs) after the services today, and you'll see on the front cover how in one of the African countries, the president of that country vowed he would completely eradicate Christianity. And he waged a war against Christians for 20 years. It ended in the year 2010. And the church of Jesus Christ in that country in Africa suffered greatly. Men, women, and children were killed. Women were raped. Houses were burned down. The church was tried to be dispersed in all kinds of ways. And you know what happened? Was that church was living proof that the gospel sees us through everything, and the number of Christians in that country now is quadruple what it was from the time the persecution started do your worst. You'll only make me stronger, is what Paul's saying, because the gospel will see me through anything. That's the first thing that Paul does, is the gospel is the mystery of grace that sees you through any suffering. The second thing that he does in this passage, he says, he talks about the wisdom of the church as it relates to suffering. And when I say wisdom of the church, I don't mean how smart the church is. What it refers to is the wisdom of God in creating the church. So, in verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the church displays God's wisdom as it embraces and lives out the gospel. Paul has already been telling them, and he says very explicitly in this passage, that It is the church that shows a watching world, it's the church that shows the watching spiritual forces in the universe how God is working to restore His creation. Remember the great promise is this, God is going to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. All wrongs will be made right, all suffering and pain will be done away with, all sin will be eliminated. All that's ugly in this life will be turned into beauty and good. That's what's coming. And Paul says the church, as it's created in this new community, is meant to display to a watching world and the spiritual rulers the wisdom of God in this arena. How? It's that the church is meant to be like a snapshot, a little snapshot of heaven, The church today is meant to be a little taste of heaven, imperfectly because we still sin and we still suffer under the consequences of sin, but the church as it lives out the gospel is meant to be a little taste of what's to come. Remember how Paul talked about the new community? And in verse 6, he said all these things about Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They're members together of one body. They're sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. The church is a snapshot and a taste of heaven when we live out the gospel open-armed to each other. You see, in the church, We are called to accept one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, regardless of race, regardless of money, regardless of background, regardless of culture. Because in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters are meant to come together and be open-armed with their resources, with their love, with their commitment, with their accountability to each other. And the better the church lives that out, the better the watching world sees God's plan for the future. You know, I look at our country, and you hear about the problem with race relations. It's the church of Jesus Christ that is meant to show how true healing can happen, where brothers and sisters, regardless of skin color, accept and embrace each other in Jesus Christ as our one foundation. That's how the races can be reconciled. And when the church does that, we show the world God's wisdom. And what's to come, the beauty of a kingdom living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the better we live out the gospel, the better we will foreshadow what, the com- what is to come in the future, and we will better foreshadow and show God's wisdom in it all. Now, how does this relate to suffering? Paul's reminding us that because the church is on display to the world and to the spiritual forces that all suffering in life has a purpose. It is not meaningless. And he's reminding this little church, and he's reminding us today, that any suffering that enters your life can be used by God to display His wisdom and glory and also strengthen you. Paul knows firsthand this very thing because he writes them from prison. Jesus took away the only suffering that can really hurt you. You realize that? Eternal separation. Eternal death. He has taken away the only thing that can truly hurt you and you have nothing to fear. So now, any suffering that comes into your life can be used by Him for His glory and your glory. That's why Paul says, my sufferings, they're your glory, church. And just like if you read the Old Testament book of Job, remember, Job's entire life was on display for the spiritual forces and rulers out there. Paul is saying, just like Job was on grand display, the church of Jesus Christ is on grand display. And the angels and the demons are watching the church because they show the wisdom and the glory of God. You know, I am so encouraged by many of you here at Stonebridge... Who have suffered greatly. Uh, some have suffered because of great illness, cancer, and your lives have been beautiful as you show forth the glory of Jesus Christ in how you deal with that. Now, I cannot prove this biblically in any sense, so I don't take this for truth, but there's a part of me that firmly believes that for every non-Christian that gets cancer, there's a Christian who gets cancer, so that the glory and the wisdom of Jesus Christ can be revealed. And that's stated so many times I talk to doctors and different people who will say how the testimony of a Christian suffering the dire circumstances of cancer show forth as they have peace, as they have hope in the midst of what would be considered a hopeless situation because they know I'm going to die some of these people. There is no cure and yet I have hope. Many of you have witnessed that and displayed that in your own lives. Never think that your suffering in life is pointless. Even if no one else saw it, Paul's saying, the spiritual and the angelic hosts see it, and you are a testimony to them. Let me end this way. There's a geologist by the name of James Clark, and he had the opportunity to go into the Soviet Union after communism had fallen. And if you know any of the history of life as a Christian in the Soviet Union, you know it was filled with persecution, torture, many times death. And so Dr. Clark was invited two years after communism had fallen, and he went into a russian baptist church to share with them and to encourage them and he talks about how encouraged he was and what he did is he was trying to think about how to explain to them the beauty he saw in them he drew from his own experience as a geologist and he used this illustration he said that what a lot of people don't realize is that clay this very common thing is composed of many microscopic clay minerals clay crystals And they're so small, not even a microscope, a standard light microscope can see these things, they're so tiny. What happens when these clay mineral crystals get under pressure, they're not crushed, and they're not made smaller, they actually grow, they get larger, they come together, and what happens is, as the pressure's placed on them, these clay mineral crystals turn into slate, The same stuff that we use on our roofs and in our kitchens, it grows. And he said, and if you keep applying pressure to it, that slate then turns into the semi-precious stone garnet. And he's looking out at the Russian Christians there and he's sharing how they have been in this pressure cooker under communism and how the pressure's done nothing but made them more beautiful. Beautiful. And he went on because he said, the process doesn't stop with garnet because if you keep applying pressure to that, it will change form once again into a mineral called staralite, which literally means stone cross. And the twin varieties of this form deep within mountains as great pressure is placed on them. And they literally, this is how they look. This isn't cut. This is exactly what it looks like. This is an unpolished Representation of it. It forms a cross. And he says, he ended by saying, I see Jesus in you. He talked about how as he was speaking to this Russian congregation, the babushkas, the old women there, their eyes were gleaming bright with tears, recounting past sufferings, because almost all of them had either suffered themselves in prison, or they had lost a husband or a child to death Because of their suffering, simply for being a Christian. And he said, as their eyes were glistening with these tears, what he recalled was what makes a gem so attractive is the reflection. And all of these dear women and men were reflecting God's glory through the suffering they had endured. And he was reminded suffering is not without purpose, it displays the beauty and the glory of Christ. If you'll turn to him in the gospel. You see, when we suffer, we're simply following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And when we suffer, we remember how he suffered most greatly for us. And I want to tell you, I know the sufferings of many of you this morning. And in no way am I trying to minimize that. But I also firmly believe what Paul is telling us in this passage that suffering is never meaningless. And what can see you through it is the gospel, the mystery of grace, as Jesus walks with you through your suffering. And never forget that God can use you in the midst of your suffering for his glory and can make you and your soul into a thing of great beauty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have just barely scratched the surface of all that Paul's talking about in this passage. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we, one, we thank you that we can live in a country where we're free to worship you and proclaim your name. Lord, it seems like that's slowly changing in different ways. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. May we take a stand wisely and rightly and show forth your glory in all ways. But we thank you that we live in a place where we're free to gather, we're free to worship. And Lord Jesus, because of all that you have done, we should worship you for all of our days. You are the beautiful one. You are the glorious one. And we thank you, Lord, that in the counterintuitive mystery of the gospel, that you won us by losing yourself. That we stand redeemed today because you took our sin. Jesus, we love you and we thank you and we praise your holy name.